Can I ask you what your lucky numbers are? Uh, I'm going to pick 14, 24, 2, 7, and 15. Oh, those are your lucky numbers. Do you know your chances of winning? Slim to none. Slim to none. You're right. Let me tell you, it's one out of 292 million. What do you think about that? I knew it. You knew it. <laughs> your, your numbers are lucky, though. Am I right? I hope so. I hope so. Can I ask you, if you won all the money, what would you do with it? Bunch of hookers and cocaine. Oh, okay. That's not good. <laughs> we were hoping for a different answer. That's probably not the answer that we're looking for. All right. There would be times that we would be running out of money and they would be scrambling and we would not be getting paid and so on. But that's kind of things that you need to figure out. And I wanted to give it my everything. I also wanted to be somehow rewarded for that. People just don't care what you have achieved elsewhere. People ask you, what have you done for the US-based companies? What have you done for startups? What have you done for startups in media industry, for example? And they want you to be very precise, being positive and following your passion. I think that it is what creates the majority of success in the end. Lubo Smith, 35 years of age, and I am one of the co-founders and the CEO of STRB, which is an engineering and design team that we have been building for over a decade now. And where are you located? I'm right now in Los Angeles, California. Is that where you're from originally? I'm originally from the Czech Republic, but yeah, I spent a lot of time in LA and it's become my second home pretty much. Well, cool. Yeah, we can figure out how you got there from wherever you were born and if you went anywhere else along the way. But why don't you tell us a little bit about STRV first? Yeah, I'd love that. We've been around for almost two decades and I joined my co-founders 12 years ago when the company was very small, a couple of people, mostly part-time. We've grown that to about 200 people and close to $20 million in revenue, focusing on building great tech products and helping other companies to build software. And the whole idea about building STRV is basically striving for creating the best products possible. And we've been so fortunate to gather really interesting talent from various areas, right? Because it's very challenging to build a great digital product because you need a lot of different expertise in various areas. And that's why there is some specialty for STRV because we can combine great design with great engineering, but also have the product element of things to deliver the project successfully. And we have been crafting that process for many, many years now. And that's pretty much what makes STIV special. It's the striving for more, which is one of the core values of ours. And that's something that we have been pushing and pushing further as much as we can. Okay. So does STRV stand for like striving or something like that? That's right. It comes from the word strive. Hey, that's pretty good of me, right? <laughs> that's, that's great. And that's how it should be, right? And when people see STRV, they often call us Strive. And we wanted to call the company Strive, but we were not able to acquire the domain Strive.com. There was a business operating on that domain already. So we bought STRV and we were for a brief moment calling the company Strive. And we did like a fancy 
rebranding announcement and that was just a mess because we did not have the domain strive.com and then we realized okay why don't we just call the company strv and people often ask me are these like first letters of the names of the co-founders or anything like that what's the story behind it and the story really is that it's our core value striving for more and i think it nicely describes what we are all about at strv I was super surprised when you said you've been in business for 12 years and you have 200 people on your team. That is right. And the business was operating longer than that. I joined a little later. My co-founders were already operating that business. But yeah, I have seen the company grow from about five to 10 people, part-time students and so on to about, yeah, it's more than 200 today if I look at the number of people in our Slack, for example. So it's been quite a ride, I have to say. But of course, there is companies that are much, much bigger. But still, yes, running a company of about 200 people is, to my taste, quite a beast. And you had co-founders. But even if you have co-founders that have 200 people working for your company when you're 34, 35 years old, it's pretty impressive. So what year did the STRV actually start? And then what year did you join? Well, we date the history of the company back to 2004. And that's where my two co-founders, David and Martin, originally started with something that we call the inception of the company. But yeah, I joined 2012. So you can see that it was a lot longer after that. But yeah, initially they were operating mostly like a, a small engineering company. And there was the two of them, a couple of other people. And when I joined in 2012, I think there was the I don't want to say that <laughs> I was the only contribution to that. Definitely not. But it was when the bigger show started. Makes sense. And like you said, it was all you. And I'm joking about that. But as far <laughs> as whenever you joined, that's why I like talking to all different types of founders. I mean, some people started it from day one. Some have come in after maybe they had five people, like you were saying, and a couple other freelancers or whatever. And not again that you were the only one to help spread that growth, but there's different life cycles, just not in human beings, but in businesses. So maybe they brought in a couple extra co-founders. It sounded like there was five total, you said, today. It's four of us. And people often think that when you are starting a company, everything is like super streamlined and clear and you have like a proper business plan and you meet with your co-founders, you agree on that plan, and then you go and execute. But the truth is that things are a lot more fluid than people think, right? So there was not really ever a clear plan at the very beginning that we want to build an engineering company of 200 people, that it's going to be four of us co-founders, and that's the journey how it's going to go. Things change throughout the time. And even when I now recall the time when I was joining, I joined as a, a project manager initially, and we were discussing my involvement and the role. And yes, it changed tremendously because I've become a co-founder. I have gotten a stake in the company and it went all the way to me acquiring later on the majority stake of the company because as of right now, I am the only one out of four co-founders that is actively working on the business. So I just wanted to make a note that things are not always that straightforward when it comes to entrepreneurship. 
And there is a lot of curveballs and everything that is being thrown at you. And you have to somehow figure out a way to mitigate that. And yeah, it's not as straightforward as we hear many, many times. Yeah, uh, that's perfect. This is a perfect interview for anyone who's listening, who's like, okay, maybe they've worked at a company for a couple of years and they're thinking about maybe even asking if they could become a co-founder or get equity stake. And again, just because you didn't start off day one, start off the LLC and all that other bullshit that comes with starting a company, doesn't mean you can't be an entrepreneur in the business that you're working with now if you like it and if there's a way to evolve. Because again, I've had so many different founders who a lot of them that I talked to are the ones who kind of started it, but some are, it was a family business. There's one I think it off the top of my head that for 50 years, his dad was the sole proprietor and maybe he had one other person working for him, like on a welding company. And then his son came over and become a hundred plus person company as a total different company, even though it's got the same name. And if anyone's interested, that was actually episode 121 I was thinking about with Matthew Nix of the Nix companies. The real opportunities for entrepreneurship, I guess, as you're younger, is kind of getting with the smaller companies if you want to buy your way in or figure out a way in. Because you could work for obviously like a Inc. 500 company, you're not really going to ever become an entrepreneur or owner within that type of company. Yeah, I would say it's really like following what you feel like and what you want to achieve. And I have seen many, many stories around me of people that have started as interns and throughout their career made it to being the CEO of the company. And of course, you are not going to make it from an intern to the CEO in two years, right? It's likely going to be a decade or something like that. But these stories really happen. And I think what's interesting to realize that the value of the companies is only related to their current performance and future potential, right? And if you can convince somebody that you are going to uncover a future potential that is 10 times bigger than the current performance, then they would be stupid if they don't make a deal with you that you might get even like 50% of the business, right? And I'm being aggressive here, but just wanted to bring a little perspective into the business thinking behind it that it might seem crazy, but being one of the key people spearheading a business is not an easy job. We can talk about that, what, what it means and what you need to do to stay sane and everything. But I think that the potential is pretty much limitless. And I have to say that I've been very fortunate having co-founders that are very supportive and flexible in these terms. And I think that all four of us, and that's what makes us, I think, a little unique, that we are not looking at it purely as a numbers game, but also as a game that we all want to be following our passions, because we know that if we follow our passions, that the results and the numbers will come. The way you're going to become part of an owner of a company, if, again, if it's a smaller one and you're just starting off and maybe it takes a couple of years for you to prove that out, but if you're able to bring revenue to the company, right? Like you were saying, the real generator of how you can become a co-owner in a company is figuring out how to bring revenue in through sales and how do you do that via marketing or whatever you can, some type of system to bring more revenue to the business. So it sounds like maybe that's what you were able to do. I don't really know, but that's my thoughts on it. I don't know if you have any more thoughts on that. Yeah, I would say that it's also the timing, right? You probably should explore that when you are entering a company early on. 
and you see the immense potential in the growth, right? SDRV, as I mentioned earlier, is reaching $20 million in revenue. And that already is a significant revenue that I can have a team around myself and I can pay them well to do their job properly, right? But not every time you have uh, opportunity to have the supporting team around you. And we see it often when we get ideas and we would like to start spin-off companies and projects because we build software products, right? And we have created a portfolio of dating apps that now have about 700,000 monthly active users. And there was an idea that was created within the company, but one of our former engineers was following what I talked about initially. And he was like, I don't really want to work just for money. I would like to be part of something bigger. I don't need salary. Like he was so fortunate that he didn't need salary at the time because he had some revenue streams from the applications that he put together on his own. And he went into this extremely aggressively. And we have built this portfolio of dating apps. And he was able to acquire a stake in that company instead of uh, just getting a, a monthly paycheck. And I think that when I look at it from the perspective of STRV, right, it's an established company right now. So discussing something like that now is probably not the most relevant topic versus if we are starting a new project and we need somebody to lead it, then it's a lot more likely that we would like to explore something like that and support the growth of these projects with some additional incentives. Well, yeah, thank you for the, I guess, you know, rundown of what we thought about of hopefully becoming an owner of a small business if anyone's striving for that. And then we can talk about SCRV later on of what it was like when you joined and then kind of how it grew. And we can dive a little bit more into details, but how about we jump into your life story first? So would you mind telling us kind of, I guess, where you were born and tell us about your entrepreneurial journey up till, I guess, joining SCRV? Of course, born in the Czech Republic. Where in the Czech Republic? <laughs> it's a small village, uh, northern part of the Czech Republic near the mountains. So. What's it called? There might be someone listening who's from there. The village is called Vila Tremeshna. How do you spell that? It's B-I-L-A-T-R-E-M-E-S-N-A. I was born in the city near to this little village. On Wikipedia, it says that it has 1,300 inhabitants. And you see a wonderful picture of our church there. But yeah, that's where I spent the first I think 12 years of my life. Yeah, when I was 12, I moved to a bigger city nearby. It's called Vurkjalven at Labem. And that's pretty much where I went to elementary school and, and high school and where I spent majority of my life before going to college and then studying abroad and then hopping on this whole journey of uh, entrepreneurship. Are you interested in business ownership? For many entrepreneurs and investors, their journey starts with franchising in the many industries outside of food, what we like to call non-food franchising. Franchising is simply the better path for many entrepreneurs, and interest in franchising is at an all-time high. Lucky for you, John Austinson, founder of Franbridge Consulting and top 1% U.S. franchise consultant, is here to help you explore the world of non-food franchising opportunities today. John and his team are part of the largest brokerage in the U.S. and have vetted the market thoroughly. FranBridge is hands down the premier source for the best opportunities in the non-food franchising world. They offer every type of non-food franchise, from healthcare to dumpsters, 
Use soccer to oil changes, specialized senior care to dog training, to insulation and windows. John has served as an Inc. 500 franchiser, a multi-brand franchisee, and he's in the top 1% of consultants nationwide and client placements. And most importantly, the success rates and track records of his clients are unmatched. You can hear more about John's story on how he started Franbridge Consulting on episode number 250 of our podcast. Not only will you hear his personal entrepreneurial journey, but you'll also hear how he helps entrepreneurs find the best franchising opportunities that work for them. Sign up for a free consultation call with John today. And when you do, you will also receive a free copy of his new book, Non-Food Franchising. Sign up at franbridgeconsulting.com. That's franbridgeconsulting.com. So you stayed in Czech Republic till you were 18, and then did you study abroad like 19? You go to a foreign university? I would say I was around 20 years of age, spent the first couple of years at the university in the Czech Republic, and then I had a chance to go study abroad in the UK for one year. It was the really first experience of trying to live abroad, and it was also the first experience of me really learning the language. I have been studying English for quite a while before, but that was the, the moment when you are in an environment that you have to use the language, then it really escalates the level of effort that you put in. And it only took a couple of months for me to like feel really comfortable speaking in English and so on. And, and that's why I think that if English is not your primary language and having an experience like that really helps. And it works with any other language after that as well. So I stayed a year in the UK. I finished my bachelor's there. Well, where in the UK was it? It was Coventry. So it's a decent size of a, a city near Birmingham, like one hour north from London. Well, tell us the difference between that and where you were before in the Czech Republic. Other than the language barrier, was there anything that happened that you're like, hey, this is way different from home, maybe I shouldn't have done this or anything like that? I loved it. And I would definitely not say that like I was regretting anything. For me, it was eye-opening. I saw a lot of new opportunities. Suddenly, I realized that living and working and studying abroad was not something out of reach, but it was actually fairly possible. And it really opened my eyes big time. Well, awesome. Yeah. Was there anything else that were very interesting that you can remember, hey, this is way different from home or was it anything different than what you thought it would be? I think that just what I mentioned previously, that suddenly realizing that things are not out of reach and I got to travel a lot and see places. And I was always interested in traveling, but I think that this really escalated me looking at what are some of the other opportunities that I can explore. Where else can I go? And I got on this journey that, yes, this was a one-year-long experience of me being abroad, but I wanted to do more and more. So I think that it really ignited this interest of mine to go after other opportunities. Yeah. It doesn't seem like a huge deal, but there's so many people who are scared to do that. So that's why I ask too, is like so many people would pass on that chance. And really, it's not that big of a deal. So it's awesome that you took that chance and did that. So you were there in Coventry for a year. And then did you graduate from there? Or where'd you go next? Yeah, I finished my bachelor's there. Then I was still continuing my master's back in the Czech Republic. But there was another opportunity that presented itself. And 
I was able to go to Vermont, to Norwich University, which is a military university, to spend another half a year there. And that was a very interesting experience to be one of the very few civilians at a military college. So that was my first encounter with the United States. And it was interesting perspective, seeing the military side of things, not really being actively participating in that, but it was all around the campus, right? Yeah. So why did you pick there? <laughs> the decision was fairly simple. I really wanted to go to the US. And I think at that time, it was a pinnacle for me that I wanted to get some of the experience of studying in the US. And there were only two exchange opportunities uh, from our university back in the Czech Republic. And I could either go to a college in Texas that I would have to pay a lot for. And then there was this opportunity to go to a military university in Vermont, where everything was kind of included in the deal. So it was mostly financial reasons why I went there and also the interest that I really wanted to have the experience from the US. Yeah, well, that's cool. Yeah, so that, that helps make the decision, obviously, like financial. But I mean, what were you studying as well? Was it the same thing as undergrad? And were you like doing your master's or like tell us what you got from that university other than understanding, I guess, the military a little bit? <laughs> yeah, I was mostly focusing on business and marketing there, although my degree back in the Czech Republic was on the intersection of tech and, and business. So it was combining a lot of programming with some business subjects and economy and, and so on. But when I was in the US, it was mostly mostly the business side of things. And I also decided to study more languages. So I added German and French. By now, I have forgotten all of that. So yeah, not proficient at all. But it was interesting to realize that once you learn one foreign language, then adding other ones comes a lot easier. But on the flip side, if you don't keep using it and practicing it, you lose it immediately. So that was my lesson learned from that. But it was mostly business related and marketing related when I was in Vermont. So when you go to Norwich University and you said it's kind of like military related, are you treated any different? Because you weren't obviously doing anything in the U.S. military or I don't know if you're doing anything with the Czech Republic military as well. But what was the difference there? Well, the difference is that you don't have to participate in the physical training and you have a lot looser regulations in terms of what is expected from you. So just to mention one big difference, well, everyone who is part of the military training program needs to do the personal training in the morning that starts at like, uh, I don't know, 6 a.m. or something like that. Versus I was able to wake up 7.30, go for breakfast, be ready for the class. And as you can imagine, if you have a tough physical training and you do not get much sleep versus you have other people in the class that are like fully rested, chill, they had like a nice breakfast before and so on. The performance during the class is totally different because you can be fully present and you can really dedicate it, the attention versus like, you know, what I experienced, like people were really, really tired during the classes. They sometimes just fell asleep and during the class because like it's exhausting, right? The military training is, is exhausting and being part of the entire program was, was exhausting. And concerning I was one of the few civilians I 
did not have to take part in any of that. But it was a very interesting perspective for me, I have to say. And I'm looking it up, Norwich University, I guess it's in Northfield, Vermont, and there's only 1,300 graduate students. So again, this is a tiny university. Undergrads, only 2,100 students. And then I'm looking at the population of Northfield, it's like 6,000 people. So again, this is a super tiny town because I feel like I've almost heard of every university, even some D2s and D3s, but I hadn't heard of this. And yeah, it's amazing that you're, again, in a small town that I've never even heard of in the U.S. That's right. And it was definitely on the smaller side, but yeah, I have enjoyed it to the fullest. Okay. And so after you graduate from there, what happens? Do you have to like finish your degree in the Czech Republic or are you all done after Northfield? So after I finished in Vermont, I took the typical U.S. road trip. I went to California for the first time. Well, real quick, yeah, tell us about the road trip. Did you start in Northfield, Vermont, and then drive all the way to California? No, I, I took a flight, then rented a car here and took a lot of bus rides. And like it was very low budget from San Francisco, L.A., Las Vegas, and then back to New York and, and, and off to Prague. But it was my first experience of the West Coast. And when I got back to Czech Republic, that was the time when I started thinking, okay, what do I do now? I still had to finish the master's degree in the Czech Republic, but I decided to do that remotely due to write the master thesis. And I started looking in terms of what to do next. And I applied to one job. It was an assistant role in an insurance company. I have no clue what I was thinking at that time and why I did that, but they rejected me anyway. And I think that cemented my destiny because I was looking around and that time I reached out to my now co-founders and considering that I was like yeah, even during college, I was being a freelance uh, software engineer just to make some money on the side. And I collaborated with two of them on some projects and I knew them from studies as well. I just, yeah, reconnected and I checked what they were doing. And that's pretty much where it connects with what I was saying previously that they mentioned that they were looking for a project manager. And that's when I joined them and we hopped on the journey of uh, building STRV. Okay, so that's super interesting. You're saying you were doing freelancing work while you, I guess you were in undergrad or grad school. Were you doing that through Upwork or some other website? Like, tell us about that, because that's a perfect thing for anyone to think of. Let's say they're an undergraduate and they want to study real estate, or if they could all go on Upwork right now and start doing real estate analysis for a bigger company as an independent contractor, maybe working five or 10 hours a week. A, you could put that on your resume if you want to work for a bigger company later on, but B, it gives you that experience. And it sounds like also the opportunity to maybe reach out to people that you've worked with in the past and let them know, hey, I'm graduating. Do you have a position for me? So yeah, how did you actually do this freelance work? And just tell us what you were doing for them. It was 15 years ago. So the sites like that did not exist at that time or were not at least as popular as they are today. I think today things are a lot easier in terms of starting as a freelancer. For me, it was really relying on my network of contacts and looking for some local businesses that needed their online presence and asked me to help them. And it was mostly referrals, right? You do a great job for one client and they refer you to another one. 
And that's what I did throughout later in high school and then during the university. But like even that first one, you said, did you email someone on a website or whatever? Like, how do you find that first one or two contacts? And did you just make their Google listing better or, or just a little bit more detail would, I think, help a little bit? It was through my friends and family, pretty much. And as I was diving into programming and everything, that's how it all started. It was not me immediately pursuing it as a business or as a freelance gig, but it really started as like the first website I built was for myself. Then it was for a friend of mine. Then it was for another friend. And then it started shifting more towards, okay, now I can make some money on that. Okay. Well, yeah, that's fine. And again, like you were saying back then, you didn't have the easy websites to do that. So you reached out to, what are the two co-founders' names? And was it called STRV at the time? It was not called STRV at the time. It was actually called You Like It. And we later realized that with our attempt to enter the US market, You Like It was probably not the most appealing name. It was a play on You Like IT, right? Because we were in tech. Oh, okay. Gotcha. I was, I was wondering where that came from. Okay. The IT was actually it. So, that, okay. I got you. Yeah. And it was my now co-founders, Martin and Pavel. And I reached out to them and that's how I got connected to our third co-founder, David. And we started chatting and they presented the opportunity that they were looking for someone to join their team to streamline more of the management side of things. And that's pretty much how we got all together. Well, what was it you like it? What were they doing at the time? They were working for quite some Czech local clients with a couple clients across Europe. So it was very local and the work was mostly related to mobile applications because it was the inception of the app store. And that was the era when we were one of the very few ones actually building mobile apps. And the businesses had yet to learn what it means to have a mobile app and why they should have a mobile app. And then we went on for a decade-long journey of seeing the huge boom of mobile applications. Okay. Yeah, because this year, I mean, based on the timeline that I'm keeping, this was about 2011, 2012 is when you joined and you're saying the app store just started and apps were going crazy? Yes, it was 2012. And I think, I, I don't remember when the app store launched, but I think it was shortly before that. And that's when it started, right? And at that time, if you just put the app in the app store where there, there were not many apps, right? So you would immediately get the eyeballs of users. At the same time, the penetration of smartphones was very low and there was not a big justification of businesses to make an immediate move to mobile versus when you look at it today, pretty much like uh, 11 years later, seeing that mobile is where we spend most of our time these days when it comes to devices. And that's where companies compete for our attention. And there is millions of apps in the App Store and, and Google Play. And it's very hard to get recognized. And there is this whole new segment of how you promote within those platforms and so on. It's very interesting perspective how the entire industry changed during that decade. 
So yeah, that comes to what you were saying, because this was a little bit over 10 years ago. I was talking about, hey, if you want to become a co-owner of a company or whatever, you also said, hey, it's about timing. Well, the same thing with this, with the business, right? If you're in the app store and I'm trying to make an app now and push it, it seems so hard to try to launch an app now and make it successful. Versus back then, there's very few apps in the store. Again, people didn't know how to make money, so that's probably part of it. But if you can get into a market early and you see that timing and you're not just waiting and contemplating forever, it seems like y'all were able to take advantage of that. Maybe that's what boosted your growth so much. 100%. There is no doubt about that. And I think that that's exactly what escalated the growth of the company, that we were in the right place at the right time with the right team and mindset. And it's not easy to put all of these together. And I think it really worked out in our favor. That opportunity is long gone, but that does not mean that there are other opportunities, right? And as much as it's probably 100 times harder to launch an app today, the fact is that the potential addressable market that you have is probably more than 100 times bigger than it was back then. So it's a lot harder, but also the reward that goes with it is a lot bigger now. So I think it still makes sense to launch apps, but you need a lot more resources these days and you need to mean it really seriously because, yeah, it's expensive. You need a lot of resources to build it out, but also a lot of resources to market it. Are you one of the thousands of businesses getting hammered by supply chain issues? Are you tired of paying insane shipping costs and waiting months for stuff to come from China? Are you still paying those 25% trade war tariffs? Why are you doing that? Zipbox.com makes it easy for US businesses to partner with factories in Mexico. And you can find everything there. Clothes, packaging, beauty products, building supplies, and a lot more with new products being added every single day. All of the factories on Zipbox are verified with no shady middlemen like you can find on those other manufacturer websites. If you want to ditch the trade war tariffs, pay 75% lower shipping costs, and get your deliveries in 5 to 10 days, not weeks, well, try Zipbox.com. For Valentine's Day, I wanted to surprise my wife by manufacturing my first adult product. And guess where I was able to find a manufacturer to produce my big product? It was Zipbox.com. That's Z-I-P-F-O-X.com. There's no membership fee and you can search without even creating an account. So try Zipbox.com today. Okay, so tell us about your journey after you actually joined the company and how long it actually took to switch the name to SCRV. I think we switched the name quite shortly after I joined. It was within a year or two. I think it was mostly related to us focusing more on selling in the United States, moving to San Francisco, and we were able to get some of the first clients in the area after, I think, being around for about a year and going, I'm exaggerating, from door to door, right? We didn't really go from door to door, but it was a lot of networking, a lot of building contacts and establishing relationships. But also convincing people that we are worth collaborating with. And the way we did that was through showcasing a lot of our skills in advance. So we would go crazy with different design elements. Like we would design like a concept of the app in advance of actually establishing a business relationship with somebody. And I think it really helped to 
show our skill set and show our expertise and onboard some of the first clients. And then it started growing from there. As we onboard first clients, we started getting referrals and we grew our network of contacts. And that's what we are relying on even today, right? That's the connections that we have built during the past decade. And you hear from people that have not been in touch with you for many years and they come back and they are like, oh, now it's the right time. I'd like to do something together. And at the very beginning, when you are new on the market, you need to prove yourself. You need to establish references. And people just don't care what you have achieved elsewhere. People ask you, what have you done for the US-based companies? What have you done for startups? What have you done for startups in media industry, for example? And they want you to be very precise and show that you have relevant references to prove that you are actually worth collaborating with. And so what were you exactly pitching them that you could do? I mean, I don't know, again, if the company switched on what you were doing right when you started and you moved to San Francisco, what were you pitching on these people? Hey, I can build your mobile app or was it something else? Just give me an example or two of a couple of clients that you've, I guess, worked with when you finally came to America, I guess, again. Yeah, it was mostly startups from the Y Combinator that we approached and it was exactly mobile apps, as you mentioned. So we really wanted to show them that we had the skills and the process to build great mobile apps at that time. And we used the design as our big leverage to create beautiful user interface and show them, okay, this is how your app could look like. Because when it comes to the decision-making process, when people actually see something tangible and it could be just a couple of screens and there is many months behind making that work, if you can show them a little bit what their product looks like and if you can maybe create a clickable prototype that they can put on their phone and just click through it and get a feel, that's what really helped us. And some of the first startups that we established collaboration with, and it, it was really about a decade ago now, was Spoon Rocket and Caviar. They were both part of Y Combinator, one of the most notable accelerators out there. And it was not easy to get through this, but that really helped us to enter the US market. Well, yeah, so that's smart because I can tell you strategically think of who could be your client. It's not like you were, like you said, you weren't literally going door to door in office buildings saying, hey, can I build you an app, right? You were looking for tech focused, a Y Combinator, which helps smaller companies. And that way, if you do a good job, like you were saying, the rest of the Y Combinator, they're likely going to know. So no matter what business you're in, you got to be strategic on who you're going to get to and what your differentiator was, right? So you said yours was style or design, it sounds like. Was it also cheaper for you to make it if you were using people from the Czech Republic to help build it? I don't know if you were using those resources or what else made you stand out versus the competition? That's definitely part of it. And that's our competitive edge as well, is that we do not have a team of engineers here in the US, but we have mostly people in the Czech Republic and elsewhere in the world. We now have some part of the team distributed pretty much everywhere, but it's part of it. And it's not just the cost of it. It's also the quality of talent that you can get. Because when you look at the local environment, the best tech talent is likely working for 
the big tech companies, right? For the Facebooks, Apples, uh, Googles, Amazons, and etc. And if you are a smaller startup with limited funding, how can you compete with these companies versus what was happening in Europe at that time, right? We did not have a whole lot of companies like that. So our ability to attract the talent was a lot better. So it's not just the price and the cost element of things, but also the quality of talent that you can get for that. And that, that I think played in our big advantage. Yeah, I guess the way I'm thinking about it, it's price to an extent, but it's more like the value, right? You go get a developer in the Czech Republic and you're paying them 100,000, they might be the top 1% of 1% of like developers in your country versus the one in San Francisco that's making 100,000. Maybe he barely knows any coding. The cost of living so much lower back home than it would be in San Francisco. So again, those two items obviously sounded like they helped a lot. That's right. And you positioned it nicely that it's not about the cost. It's about the value that you get for that price. And I think that's where it really resonated with the clients because the value that they got was a lot greater than what you would get elsewhere. And so your competition, what other type of like app companies would approach these Y Combinator people? Were they all based in San Francisco? So they had a higher cost of doing business versus you, or were they offshore people in India trying to develop apps and they are trying to approach these Y Combinator companies as well? The competition is fierce, of course, and there is many, many companies that are in the similar space like us. And you go different places because you want to get different things. You mentioned India and places like that, and you can find wonderful engineers there. But I think that the ratio of them, that's where it gets challenging. I think it's very hard to navigate versus I think that when you look at central and Eastern Europe, and that's area where majority of our team is located. I think it's like, yes, we are somewhere in between, right? It's not that as expensive as here in the US. It's not as cheap as in India or, or the Philippines, for example. But I think that the quality of the output and the value you get is what makes the deal happen. And that's why companies are turning to us because they want to deliver the same level of quality they would be getting from a local person or higher, and they want to optimize for what is the amount that they pay for it. So that's pretty much how I'm thinking about the competition. And yes, there is many, many companies in the space, and it can get quite hard to navigate, actually. Because I knew there was like, you have a lot of people in India that might be doing this, but like you were saying with your design, if anyone wants to check out your website, strv.com, right? That's right. I mean, you can see the design there. I would highlight that Pavel, one of my co-founders, he is the person that really helped us to put the brand out there because he's the visual guy. He's the person that was able to create and kickstart the brand. And of course, there were many people after that that came on board and helped us to shape the brand and the look and feel of everything that we do and design the website as it looks like currently. But he was really the key element of us being able to rely on design as one of the key pillars of how we differentiate ourselves. So what do you think differentiated you within the company? What, what did you bring to the table to become a co-founder 
and have that conversation after a few years of working at a STRV. It's very interesting. And I just talked about it yesterday with a friend of mine that I don't feel that I have an extraordinary power in certain area. What I feel is my superpower is that I can absorb a lot of different skills and do them on a very, very high level, right? So I'm not going to be the best in the world in anything, but I feel that I have a good sense of how to bring a very high bar in majority of the areas. And that, I feel, is my superpower. Because if I look back at the history of us building the company, my role changed like 20 different times. And there were years when I was mostly leading the sales efforts. There were years when I was mostly focused on marketing or running the engineering or doing the product management. And I was always able to adapt to what I felt or we felt as a team was needed the most. So that's what I think is what I brought to the table. And if you want me to mention a few things about the rest of our co-founding team, then I would say that David, he was the previous CEO. He is a wonderful visionary. He is a person that can really establish great relationships with people. And he is still friends with many of our clients that we had a decade ago. And he is also wonderful in terms of motivating people and steering them towards certain direction. And that is like his attitude is very infectious. So he can really motivate team nicely. And Martin, our fourth co-founder, is the tech guru. He is the one that we relied on when it came to making all the technical decisions and, and running the engineering show. Although I'm the only one actively involved at STRV, they are still around and we are doing things together. So we are very much a compact group of people. Okay. So when did you have the conversation? Because you joined 2012, right? We were saying, is that when you joined? That's right. When did you have the conversation of becoming a co-owner? We had the first discussion very early on. It was within the first year, I think. But there were multiple of those discussions throughout the years. We had one, then we had another one. And then it was a couple of years back when we agreed, when I basically was the only one remaining active in the business that I would go and I would acquire the majority stake in the company. So it was like three rounds. Did you bring it up the first conversation or did they? I did bring it up. What'd you say to him? I said that I wanted to commit to something fully and that I would not enjoy just being an employee for a long run. And I wanted to give it my everything. And I also wanted to be somehow rewarded for that. And I don't remember the specific words that I used, but... Well, that's good enough. I mean, that's great right there. And what'd they say? It was David mostly being in charge of that side of the discussion. And David typically does. He took some time to think about it. But I think that he saw the motivation and he saw the impact that I had on the company until then. And he was very reasonable. We agreed on terms and the rest is history. So right after that conversation, what, a week later, they're like, hey, here's X percent of ownership in the company? More or less, yes, but it was all vested and it was related to us meeting certain conditions and so on. Well, what type of conditions? Is it like, hey, if you make X percent of revenue, then you get X percent of the company or what? No, it was mostly vesting based on the time of me staying with the company 
I think it was related to that at that time. And we agreed on it in an email initially, and that was it. I think that when it came to the paperwork, we did that at some point later. A year later, or what are you thinking later? Yes, within a couple of years after that, probably. Okay, so it took maybe like two or three years for you to put on paperwork versus what you had sent in the original email? Yes, I think that sounds about right. Probably about two years. Yeah, sorry if I'm getting the details of this, because I don't think I've had this specific conversation on any of the episodes so far that I've put out over the last five plus years. It seemed like it worked out well, but I don't know if there's anything different you would do or suggestions you'd have for anyone who's listening now who might want to eventually become co-owner of the company they're working in now. I would say don't push it, because when I say that it took us a couple of years to sort it out and cover it from the legal standpoint as well, I think it shows a lot of trust and faith that you put into the relationship. And I think that's also a very important part of it, right? You want the other person or group of people to realize that you are not doing it just for the sake of getting the best deal out of it, but that you really believe in it. And I think that was an important element of things. At the same time, it's important to at some point clean that up and put things in writing and make sure that, yeah, things are covered from the legal side. Because we hear it all the time that people agree on something and then things change and so on. And I think that we have built a huge level of trust among the group of my co-founders that, yes, we don't need that, but we do it for, just for the sake of keeping the house clean. It allowed us to create a great level of relationship. And so you said y'all started off in San Francisco, but today you're in Los Angeles? That's right. We spent the first two, three years in San Francisco, and then we felt like the weather was, was not so nice there. So we moved over to Los Angeles. And there's too many people pooping on the sidewalks? <laughs> There's many reasons. I guess we're talking about 2016, 2017, when you moved. Around that time, maybe even a little earlier than that. But no, I love being in LA. I love the weather. Business-wise, a lot of opportunities here as well. I can go to San Francisco anytime. But I think that I have really created the second home here. And yeah, I, I really like it. And I like the setup. Well, when you moved to LA, were all your co-founders still working full-time in the business? At that time, yes, it was still all of us. But our interest was always to build our own products. So there were many, I would say, attempts to build something on our own. Some of them were successful, some of them failed. So we would always go and focus on like a, a spin-off project. And if that went well, then we would stay on or we would come back. So it was changing throughout the years. But yes, at that time, it was all of us focusing on the core business. So tell us your biggest failure as a company with one of these projects or anything else, because I think we've only talked about the positive stuff. But yeah, it's important everyone understand that you screw up, everybody screws up. And it, it's not even necessarily screwing up. Again, what you brought up, life, and not just business, but it's about timing. So you could have tried to create something. Maybe you're trying to do something with the uh, virtual reality back in 2016, and that was way too early. you know. So when we're talking about timing and whatnot, but what other applications did you make? Or maybe just even your biggest failure as a company that you can think of? I'm not sure if it's the biggest failure, but definitely it's the biggest missed opportunity that we were trying to put collectibles on the blockchain in 2017. And we were told that it's never going to work. And <laughs> it's funny when you think about that collectibles on blockchain 2017. And when you look at what's happening in the NFT world today, or definitely what was happening in the past two years, 
it's a great confirmation that we were just way too early. I wouldn't say that it's the biggest failure. I think that's a big lesson learned that the timing is very important. Throughout the years on the client side, we had many projects where we just went down the rabbit hole, built something big and great and didn't get paid for it. Tell us about that. What did you build that was big and great that you didn't get paid for? I think that overall, our business mentality in the early days was not the savviest in terms of checking whether clients have actually the funds and the credibility to pay us and then just not having like sometimes we would not even and i feel bad even saying that <laughs> but we would not even like send invoices for our work because we were just like busy doing other things yeah and doing the work yeah you're busy in the work that you forget to send the invoice so there would be times that we would be running out of money and they would be scrambling and we would not be getting paid and so on but that's kind of things that you need to figure out so you can run the kind of business that we run very efficiently but yeah I, I think that i would rather call this as like a lot of small mistakes that we have done on the way rather than like the biggest failure it's really insightful so as soon as you said you were setting up the patreon it was just like yeah i'll help this guy you know i take a lot of value from it you know it's as simple as that yeah i really appreciate that man well i was going to say have you checked out our newest patreon episode yeah, it's just like, oh, well, I'm in the car. I'll just listen to it, whatever. But I'm not getting anything out of this. And then you're like, wow, I'm not that naive or anything, but it really did open your eyes. Appreciate you doing the call here. Yeah, favorite podcast by far. I love it. Oh, yeah? Why is that? So I graduated 2017 from Michigan. I heard that shout out the end of the day. That was pretty cool. Basically, two months after I graduated, I started listening to the podcast. Loved it. I think there were maybe 30 episodes or something out by that point. And I consider myself to be pretty entrepreneurial. Started a business last year. This helped a ton. And it's hard, I think, to find entrepreneurs. I was just looking for entrepreneurial meetups. And I think, wow, this is more of an awesome opportunity to talk with other entrepreneurs. The value is, I mean, it's insane. Like people make these types of entrepreneurial insight things are thousands of dollars. This is 12 per month, but one per month is like nothing. I like that perspective and the way you worded it better too. So I agree with you because don't feel dumb or stupid or embarrassed about because all that happens to all of us. And anyone who doesn't think so, well, they're lying because it happened at one point, even if you were eight years old and selling lemonade or whatever, you know what I'm saying? Like you get so wrapped up in the business, you're like, oh, I'll come back. But maybe one of the things you learned is, hey, I need a big deposit up front. I'm not doing any work until I get a deposit up front. But when you're young and you're trying to build a company, like we discussed, you probably wouldn't even be here at this level today if you didn't just focus on getting them out as fast as you can. I'll worry about invoicing later. We know it's important, but what matters to me right now is trying to build that credibility. So at least you were doing that. It sucks when you're running out of money. You're like, why? And you're like, oh man, I forgot the invoice. But now you've established a brand that you're like, hey, I need all the money up front or I need something up front versus doing it in arrears and maybe invoicing them a year later because you forgot. That's exactly right. And that's how we think about that, that sometimes you just need to prioritize and you can't do all of the things at the same time. And of course, if you focus on one thing a little more, other things might suffer. But that's what building a company up is all about, that you constantly need to prioritize and 
readjust the focus. So it's kind of a bread and butter of what you need to do. Yeah. And the perspective for all of life. Again, we all learn these perspectives through trial and error. And we try to also learn them through educating ourselves by, you know, listening to your story and other ones like it. Yeah, that's it. That's what you need to do. And that's what it's all about. Well, I guess before we get off, personally, you're 34 today, right? 35. 35. Okay. Yeah. So you're 35. Did you ever get married, have any kids or anything like that? Or have you just been totally focused on the business? Like what's your personal life been like the whole time at your company? You totally surprised me with the question. I'm 34, actually. And, yeah, see, uh, <laughs> I, I put it in Excel. I'm like, dude, I know. Right, so well, here's what I here's what I normally used to do, and this is the first time I did it because I asked for everyone's <laughs> I asked for everyone's birthday, and I used to put the year and then just do plus one and just bring it down to you, you see how old you were. But now today, I'm like, I put your exact birthday in Excel, and I'm like, I'm like, it's telling me <laughs> that you're 34. Okay, so all right, yeah, man. I have not been talking about my age that I almost forgot. I was like, you surprised me with like a fast confirmation. 34 still. Okay, yes. right. So yeah, you're 34. I mean, how's your personal life been? It sounds like you gave us some insight of at least you got the travel bug. I don't know if you traveled some more after you went to study abroad and obviously came to America and did whatnot. But what's that been like while you've been at STRV? I would say that throughout the past years and throughout the past decade, I've been traveling between the Czech Republic and, and the US almost every couple of months. And it's great on one side because you get to enjoy experiencing new places and spending time in different parts of the world. On the other side, it gets tiring and it's not the best thing for your personal life, I would say. But I very much enjoy the travel amount of things. I think that especially in the last year or two, I really slowed down. So if I travel, I try to stay longer. So now I'm in LA for about two months, then I go to Prague for a little bit. And there were years when I would go and I would do like 18 round trips. And that was brutal. And I would not recommend that to anyone. And yeah, now I'm trying to calm down a little bit. That's kind of the name of the game for me right now. Well, thank you for sharing your story and how STRV was built and whatnot. So what type of clients do you take on today? I don't know if there's anyone listening that could potentially use you guys or but do you focus on something more specific or I don't know if there's a pitch for anyone who would want to reach out who those clients are that you might be able to help. Yeah, we focus on startups that raise funding and need help with building their digital products all the way up to Fortune 500 companies seeking some innovation, inspiration, and help with design and engineering. So our clients really range from startups that joined an accelerator, raised the first round of financing, and really need help with some digital expertise to bigger companies and corporations helping them to build their digital products. And we can cover all of those areas. And we have a team that can come in and deliver the product end-to-end. -end. And on the flip side, we can also integrate with existing teams. So it's all about if there is an interest in building great digital product and really investing into making something that is going to stand out, function well, be seamless, and so on. That's what really resonates with us. We are STRV. We are striving for more. We want to do top work. And if that interests anyone, then we definitely want to hear. Okay. Well, what's the best way for them to reach out to you and find out more information? Or I don't know if there's an email for them to contact you and thank you for doing the interview. 
The best is to go on our website, strv.com, and drop us a note there or send us an email or a message on any social media or reach out to me directly. I'm on all the platforms. My handle is the same everywhere. It's Lubo Smith, L-U-B-O-S-M-I-D. Any of these channels is just fine. We all communicate internally very well together, so we'll be able to connect the dots. Okay, cool. So someone could reach out to you on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever, or on Facebook and just message you. And thank you there for doing the interview. That's right. I'm everywhere. Cool. All right. Well, any last words of wisdom for anyone who's listening and any type of entrepreneur, whether they're starting one or trying to become a co-founder of a business? I think I would like to double down on what I said initially, that if you are following your passion, maybe you will not see the results and the numbers immediately, but at some point that will come. And I would pair it up with thinking positively, because that's a big part of that as well. And these are the two that I would just drop right now. And I'm pretty sure that there's a lot that you can find out about all of those areas, but being positive and following your passion, I think that it is what creates the majority of success in the end. I'm glad you brought that up because I did say an episode and I'll reemphasize this episode since we're closing this one out. Go check out episode 121 afterwards. It was with Matthew Nix. We actually even talked about that. Being positive, like you can't be so positive that you think everything's going to work out all the time. But so many people are like neutral or kind of negative, unfortunately. I still remember even talking to him like because I had a group call with him for all the Patreon members, which they can check out too if you want to check out the group call I had with him. But he is all about, if you got positive energy, I will hire you, basically. But if you're coming in and you're the best worker in the company and you're negative, well, you probably you might be bringing down 10, 20, 30 employees. So even that one person that might have great ROI for the company, but you're bringing down the whole company ROI by negatively infecting 30 people. So having that positive energy and positive mindset is huge, right? So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And I think that's a big thing for people to remember. Just be the attitude of gratitude always helps. It's going to help you in life and help you in business. So again, thanks for coming on, Lubo. Thank you so much for having me. Flash forward to 2009, and I'm back in the golf business as a club pro. And I get a message on my MySpace page from a 14-year-old kid in Mexico claiming that I was his father. You know, he says I impregnated his mom in the champagne room at a club in Cozumel on New Year's Eve in 1998. And I immediately called bullshit because I remember that night vividly. And there were at least five other guys with me uh, that were also prime candidates. So I have to go down there as part of a paternity hearing. And the night before I have to testify. So if you want to hear more interesting stories, just like this preview, well, become a Patreon member today. You know, you're missing out. Just check the link in your episode description below to join the club or go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. Join the club. Join the club. Join the club.